1: This is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer,
2: Dr Sam Willis. And he is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected. Each week we discuss a surprising subject oozing with unexpected
1: historical significance. And this week it's the paperclip. Which is all about the Stasi. It's about Big Brother and spying on people. Oh yes, and puzzle women what puzzle women well for me it's about the norwegian resistance movement in the second world war
2: if you like what you hear please leave us a review on itunes subscribe to the podcast and tell
1: all of your friends do it now go on we're on twitter follow me at dr sam willis and you can follow me at james daybell and you can follow the histories of the unexpected podcast on at unexpected podcast spelt p d c s t we are Proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit and other great shows coming soon. And you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming
2: months. Show notes, video clips, photos of everything we discuss and much, much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 30 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio-googling through history, exploring the histories of things
1: that you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like monsters, the chair or the knife. And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything has a history, and crucially, how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of the glove, the history of the glove, was in fact all about poison? At the court of Queen Elizabeth, and that the history of sweat was all to do with slums in New York. Mm. It's about sweatshops, cramped conditions. The man sitting opposite me is the jester of journals, it's Professor James (laughs) Dayrell. Hello, and the man sitting opposite me is the custodian of conundrums. It is Dr Sam Willis. I'd be a very bad custodian. I just want to put that out
2: there. I lose stuff all the time. (laughs) uh, Together, we will be piloting you on this uncharted and frankly highly dangerous flight into the past. Each week, one of us takes the lead with a new idea,
1: a new theme. This week, it's your turn. Okay, I have for you the paperclip, and this is in honour of those very nice people at... BBC Radio Devon and The Afternoon Show, who had me on to talk about this podcast series (laughs) when we first launched. Um, The very nice people in PR at Plymouth University put together a press pack and they bit about the paperclip. Right, They were obsessed with the paperclip. That's interesting. And they wanted me to talk about nothing but the paperclip, so I would talk about anything else other than the paperclip. But this is specially for BBC Radio Devon.
2: Is that because you think they didn't believe that the paperclip has a history? Exactly. I think so, because it was probably a list of things like demons and monsters and zombies, which yes. people might assume yes.
1: have a history, but the paperclip... And, and I think they just assumed that being a history professor, I was, you know, just a, an out-and-out out nerd. You know, the history of the train time table. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> so it actually is the history of the paperclip. Right, yes. OK, so we're doing so, the paperclip. So where do you
1: go with the paperclip?
2: Um, it is Um one. one.
1: I have one for you here. All oh, right,
2: let me have one, and then it might this inspire a, This me. will
1: inspire you. This is a gem paperclip. Oh, that's beautiful. It's a very tiny one. It's much
2: smaller. They come in different sizes, don't they? So, for me, the immediate thought is that it's to do with the history of... Innovation and being able to record that innovation and sort of entrepreneurs making immense fortunes out of something ridiculously simple, but which, which is, you know, they're just prevalent in society. I mean, I wonder how many paper clips I've got in my house. I've probably got a 100 and I don't think
1: I've got any. They're probably everywhere. I have a pot of 5,000 here. You, and you've got different sizes. Yes. 5,000. That's because they're mixed up. I bought a box of 5,000. I use them all the time. In fact, all the notes that I keep for this podcast series are kept with paper clips. Mm. So for me, it's about filing.
2: Okay, so you can go go to the the, the logistical side of things. But, um, yeah, so for me, it's patents. It's to do with Ah. the legal side of things and how you can actually prove that invention is yours, yep. how yep. you can guarantee that you get paid for that invention. It's to do with
1: capitalism, I suppose, isn't mm. it? Mm. If you follow the Early Office Museum blog site, yep. uh, you will see a very good the history, what? history the of early the Early Office Museum. The Early Office Museum. The of the Early Office. The, yeah, exactly, which is all about stationery. And they have a wonderful webpage, which is about the history of the paperclip. And if you go to that webpage, you can see any number of different Sort of styles of paper clips, which I've got here in front of me. So the gem is the one that I gave you. Well, have a look at this one of the sort of earlier ones here. It struck
2: me. Offices, right? So they're all to do with massive, large scale administration. Yeah. And so, what is the one example of the biggest scale sort of pre industrial administrative system? In the UK. The, then the Navy. The Navy, yep. See, where it's yep. the Navy. And actually, the history of offices and the history of administration is all to yep. do with the Navy, particularly in the 17th century. Samuel Pepys. Yep. People like that, who suddenly reformed everything.
1: Real f- Pepys, the real great fan. diarist,
2: I bet, yeah. So that was all to do with that. So
1: maybe there is a route into my deep knowledge here. I discovered some Samuel Pepys letters, unpublished Samuel Pepys letters, in... Devon Record Office, cool. The Devon Heritage Centre. Very, very short. Um, he's losing his eyesight at that period, but it's 1670s, I, I think. Did really they have paper clips in the 1670s? No paper clips. So, if we think about the history of the paperclip clip and linking to your patents, is around mid 19th century. So, one Samuel B. Fay in 1867, uh, an American, licensed a paper clip, and there are other sort of paper clips. You know, after that, in 1904, Cushman and Denison. There's also a sort of uh, a tale that the Norwegians invented the paperclip. And there's a Norwegian inventor. uh, Johan Valir. That's exactly him, who patented it in, I think, in Germany and in America. And so that's the early story of it. But what I'm going to do now is talk about a period pre the paperclip. I want to start by showing you some pictures some famous portraits. What we have here is a 16th century merchant, a uh, portrait of a merchant, 1530, uh, the National Gallery of Art in Washington DC by Jan Grossart. And what you can see here, where well, you describe it. So we have got the merchant here and he's sitting at his desk and
2: he's got a sheaf of papers he's got a quill he's got an ink pot he's writing he's got more quills to the right of him so it's quite a busy desk yeah and then up behind him he's got loads of sheaves of paper kind of well, oh, they're hanging from the wall. They're, they're hanging, hanging, aren't they? They're hanging they're from
1: hanging. the wall, but they, they look like a modern calendar. Like, yep. you, you get a calendar for Christmas. And so this yeah, is a period pre-the paperclip. And pre-filing. And sorry. pre-filing. And this is what he's doing. Well, it, I mean, it's not pre... I mean, it's pre-filing cabinets, but it's... But, you know, this is his makeshift filing system. Mm. So these are obviously the bills and the correspondence that he's got pinned in some sort of systematic order. We have another... Quite famous painting here from Hans Holbein the Younger, another early 16th century, the portrait of the merchant George Guise.
2: It shares a lot with the other one, doesn't it?
1: So yeah. you've got a merchant
2: there at his desk. He's got, a, again, a very busy table with all sorts of things. got a nice vase of flowers. You should always... Everyone should have a vase of flowers on their desk. Um, a, an extraordinary array of things sort of tucked up on shelves behind him. This is brilliant. We should do the
1: history of the study. Yeah, ooh, I lo- oh, I'm obsessed with that. I've got all <laughs> sorts of inventories that document exactly what's in the study. Yes, we anyway, should do- note got, that down. He's got his letters sort of hooked over... Bars. Yeah. Isn't he? So, what I want to talk about is a period pre the paperclip. So, we're talking about the emergence of paper documents, Mm. basically, which you can document from the medieval period onwards. But the sixteenth century is a real time of explosion in terms of the very records that we got that's what were they writing
2: on before paper then? Romans. So they'd be writing, they'd be
1: writing on tablets, they'd be writing on you know on vellum. Walls um, we've done graffiti. On, on walls we've yeah. done graffiti. But we've got, you know, the need to basically systematize paperwork. So it's about how you impose administrative structures onto society through the use of paper with Mm -hmm. the rise of literacy. And what you've got here is two merchants who are obviously dealing with masses of paper all the time, you know, they've got correspondence coming in. They've got bills. They've got accounts. They've got all, all sorts of things that they need to keep. And there are some really interesting ways. I must admit, I am <laughs> you are obsessed sl- about stationery. I am slightly obsessed about stationery. <laughs> this is a continual theme, and about archives. Yeah. I just happen to be writing a book on archives at the moment, so that, that's where this is coming from. But what we've got is these really interesting techniques pre the paperclip to actually oh, stick bits of paper together. You know, and there are records of people. Stringing correspondence literally on a string, really, as a way of sort of plucking it down. And you can see in the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington DC, there are examples of various documents with little pinholes in them. Yeah, and the pinholes—it's not just people poking poking pins in; it's where the string would Has have gone through, strung up to organize it. So then it reminds about...
2: me of Christmas cards, kind of dangled up. Now, exactly, but exactly. Offices would have looked exactly. Like that. I think the, actually the important thing is with administrative systems like that is us being able to draw it out and saying once you are dealing with massive massive bodies of paperwork and you work out a system which enables you to to process that then things like governments things like armies things like navies, things like tax that all becomes much much more efficient so it's actually to do with the the establishment and the growth of societies we know it isn't it
1: yeah and archives extend not any state archives any institution will have an archive so it you know you can think about schools you can think about hospitals you can think about Mm. corporations families have Archives and ways of, you know, of recording family memory, of, of keeping track of land inheritance. That, that's interesting. All of that so, sort of so, so thing. there's
2: a difference between working documents. Like yep. at the moment, we have yep. our notes in front of us yep. now, which are working documents. Yep. Where how we store those exactly. once they have been. I used. have
1: paper clips mm-hmm. uh, and folders and a filing box. Mm-hmm. But where I want to go with this is an example of Lord Burleigh, you know, who's one of the leading uh, government officials in the reign of Elizabeth I, and this was a man who. It just dominated the political scene from Elizabeth's accession to the end of his life in the in the late fifteen nineties. And this was a man who kept a team of private secretaries to work for him. And because he was politically so important, had masses and masses of material coming towards him. You know, paper material that he had to process. One of his secretaries wrote of him that he drew upon him a multitude of suits as was incredible But to us that saw it, for besides all business in council and other weighty causes, there is not a day in a term wherein he received not three score, four score or a hundred different items of paper. So the idea then is like, when you're in government like that and you've got that sort of swamp of paperwork coming to you, you know, that are connected with foreign business, domestic affairs, how do you organise it? And this is a time when we see the rise of the private secretary, but also the principal secretary. And we see the development of these very... Uh, sort of intricate filing systems to be able to keep this all in place. And I've got a really brief quote here from a manuscript manual written in 1592, which was prepared by a secretary, Nicholas Faunt, who's one of Francis Walsingham's Elizabethan spymaster, one of his secretaries, describing about how you basically organise paperwork for the principal secretary of state. And he writes... It shall also be convenient to be provided of another secretary for the dispatch of ordinary matters and chiefly for the continual attendant in the chamber where the papers are, whose particular charge may be to endorse, in other words, to write notes on the back, endorse them or give them their due titles as they daily come in, and every morning to set them in several bundles for the present use of them. So that's your sort of working paperwork. And then when they grow to be many, those that have been most dealt in and dispatched to be removed into some sort of chest or or place, less confusion or loss of some of them grow through an exceeding and unnecessary multitude of papers as hath been seen in that place. As you say, exactly, it's about daily processing of paperwork, sorting it out, and then the archiving of it so that you can retrieve it later on. So for me, the history of the pre-paper clip... Pre-history the of, the pre-paper paper clip. of the paper The pre-history of the paper is about the organisation of knowledge. It's about bureaucratic culture. It's about archives it's about how you organize knowledge and materials how you organize and the the value of
2: that yeah so it's why the secretary of the navy was paid more than the first lord of the admiralty
1: yeah that's a great fact the secretary is something that we should also do
0: if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.
2: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. I'm doing the symbolism of the paperclip, nice. which is something different to the function of it. Actually, one thing before I move on to that, one of the things that I thought about when I was just fiddling with my paperclip here is that you know how nice it is to undo a paperclip yep. and then it immediately becomes useless. But it's to do with the, uh, what, what's the kind of the secondary function of the paperclip? What's the unexpected
1: function of the paperclip? It's a symbol. What else do you use it for? Uh, for I don't, picking locks. For, can, yeah, I don't know how to or, do that. We should uh, try. As a child, I used to unpick a paperclip like this so that it formed an S. Oh, yeah. And pretend that I was Superman.
2: Ah, very, I could have done that because my name is Sam. Ah, ah, Super Sam. Super Sam. Guys, can you get in touch, please, and tell me what the best unexpected uses of the paperclip are? Because I bet there are some fantastic ones that we don't know about.
1: It's <laughs> actually good for an iPhone for taking out a battery. Yes. Yes, or a SIM card. Yeah.
2: Ah, oh, yep. contemporary <laughs> unexpected uses of the paperclip. Um, so, symbolism of the paperclip. Absolutely brilliant. Second World War. Norway. Ah. So tell not, me about that. The Nazis invade um, hmm. spring, early summer of 1940. And there are various ways in which the Norwegians display their unhappiness with being under the thumb of the Nazis. The Nazis a certain extent have expected this. So they are dealing with signs and symbols of protest and resistance. And they've had to do this all over the shop. And um, I would actually love to know, I bet they had this, the Germans were obsessive administrators. I bet they probably had people thinking about this and identifying things which were signs of resistance going to look into that. One of the things they weren't allowed to do was to talk about the Norwegian royal family or to have anything symbolically representative of the Norwegian royal family, because that was an obvious way and an expected way by the Nazis that the Norwegians would demonstrate resistance to Nazi rule. Mm. So I get the sense they were given a load of things they couldn't do, and what they did was they adopted their own. And what was great about that is it went under the Nazi radar for a while until they caught up with it, and they used... Paper clips, which is really interesting. You know, it's a symbol of connectedness. It's a symbol of unity. It's a symbol Mm. of solidarity. It's about people being bound together according to some kind of principle, according to some kind of feeling or policy. And they used a paperclip when they would have paper clips in the kind of the pockets of their jackets, and they'd also.
1: Would you actually be able
2: to see them? You'd be able to see the paperclip. Let me have a paperclip. I'm I'm going to put it on my clothes. This is a tiny one, but it's very subtle.
1: I should put one on as well.
2: And once you put 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 it on, you can see half the paperclip. There we are. So we are now... Paperclip gang. We are united yeah. in our experience of podcasting about paperclips. So they wore paperclips, and they also started making jewellery out of paperclips, mm. um, which I think is fascinating. It took the Germans a while to work out what was going on. Part of the reason bound up in this, fact that it was the Norwegians doing it, is that there was belief that the paperclip as we know this gem paperclip mm. was designed by someone called Johan Valir. but he actually designed a paperclip which was different and was never put into mass production so it's also a wonderful example of people getting it wrong they believed it was correct because it was written in norwegian encyclopedias saying that Johan Valir did actually invent the paperclip but it's incorrect nevertheless they adopted this as a symbol of national identity and national solidarity and from there that got me thinking about symbols of national identity, mm. particularly in the wake of what's happened in the last year or so. And this, I think, is one of the most important symbols of our time now. Have you seen that?
1: Yes, that's the so, Eiffel Tower, sort of like a CND Yes, sign. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's
2: the uh, you know, world-famous peace symbol, but the fork in the centre is the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, And that was produced by a graphic designer shortly after the Paris bombings of November 2015. It's a sign that immediately says France to you, and it also says peace. Yeah. It's a wonderful piece yeah. of graphic design. So now we have these... Identities and symbols which flash around the world. And this is a new phenomenon. This is something that's only happened in the last six months, and certainly in certainly the wake of the Paris attacks. I think that was when it first became noticeable to me. And as well as people putting this symbol all over their Facebooks, all over their Twitters, identifying themselves with the plight of the French, we actually see it on a much broader scale as well. With the Sydney Opera House, was coloured with big kind mm. of um, lasers right. in the same colours as the tricolour, as the French flag. So was the London Eye, so was the Brandenburg Gate, so was Christ the Redeemer in Brazil. Mm. So there are people now having to find methods of demonstrating symbolically solidarity, and which also cross over boundaries and cross over nations. And so for me, that little paperclip leads us onto all sorts of things. And of course, with everything that we do in the Histories of the Unexpected, there is an amazing history to it. So this idea of using images like that to talk about french national identity in the aftermath of the 2015 bombings that's a new thing others have histories as well this one is the most notable one and everyone who's just watched the olympics from brazil we have a rather gorgeous lady here in a brazilian
1: samba outfit goodness me that's incredible she's She's a dancing sunflower. She's a dancing. That's what I was grasping for. Yeah, dan- a, a dancing <laughs> sunflower. Say what you see, James. Yes. Don't she, panic. She's a, she's a, a dancing sunflower. Yes.
2: What's that about? I, mean, I was thinking as well when I was watching all of the kind of the you know the pre-show for the Olympics and the post-show for the Olympics. What the hell is going on in Brazil? It's the only place it happens. It's the history of the paperclip. It's the history of the paperclip. Brazilian samba is the history of the paperclip. It is the key to unlocking what's going on there. I know. I only use it as a slight the off the wall ridiculous example but samba is a key symbol the both the music and the dance of brazil but not only of brazil of rio the city in particular and that didn't just come out of nowhere It's an early 20th century thing that happened and it's a phenomenon that appeared and it's massively complex and it's all to do with Brazilian music, it's all to do with origins of Brazil, it's all to do with race and also their passion for culture and also all to do with extreme political uncertainty, identity within Brazil in the Mm. early 20th century. Mm. It's a very disparate nation politically and culturally and out of this kind of chaos came Samba. And it did unite people, and it is
1: now used as a symbol so, of so Brazilian culture. Brazilian so it's culture. a sort of cultural paperclip. It is a cultural paperclip. Uniting people. Let me take you back to your symbolism of the Norwegian use of the paperclip. It's very similar to what we see in a post-Brexit landscape where people are wearing safety pins. OK. You know, People were wearing safety pins after all the sort of racist attacks and violence, you know, that was leading up to the Brexit vote and post it. Maybe it's sort of decreased now, but it was certainly something in those few weeks afterwards. You know, people were wandering around with safety pins to say, you know, that effectively we are united. We are not going to let this kind of, you know, xenophobic, racist behaviour happen. Mm. It's in, cheap and it's innocuous. Everyone has them, you know, rather like the sort of, you know, the breast cancer pins yeah. that people would have. Well, one of the interesting things about the paperclip demonstrations in Nazi Norway was that
2: one of the first mass demonstrations happened at university. It was non-violent, and it was cheap. And that links us to the wonderful history of student demonstrations. <laughs> Doesn't it? It does, but yes. we're not going down, no, okay, route. down. we're not going down okay. the route
1: of student demonstrations. But God. it does. I went we to should, my first student demonstration <laughs> the other day. Uh, I'd
2: never been to one before. You did. Um, I was filming in Birmingham. What they were was, they demonstrating? They were demonstrating against the Tory conference. The Tory right. um, conference was, was held in Birmingham, and they were. It was really interesting, okay, so the... So we are going down the route of student demonstration. Very briefly, briefly It yes. wasn't students, it was all sorts of people, but it was an anti-austerity march. Right. That's what it was advertised by. There were thousands of people there, but it kind of got hijacked by all of the various groups that disliked the Tory government for their various reasons. So rather than it being an anti-austerity march, there were people campaigning for... I, I don't know. I, I can probably think of 10 or 15 different things. It was one of the most chaotic, unsolidarity displays of misery and unhappiness with the government I'd ever seen. It was really, really interesting. It was supposed to be about one thing and it wasn't. It was about 20.
1: Goodness me. So like the,
2: the, I always, assumed the, student, it, student I always assumed the demonstrations were actually quite focused
1: and about one thing. No, no, but, no, no. But
2: really, not that is no. not the case.
1: People flock towards it for their own... Yeah. their own purposes historically that has happened we should but do but when i was there
2: it really lo- the power of it was completely lost because it yeah. was so fractured
1: yeah although the group the crowd that's something we should do the history of the crowd
2: but no one seemed to know what they were demonstrating against so i was there was one part of people shouting against austerity someone shouting against the nhs someone shouting about jobs in the north and um in terms of its power it completely Lost it because there was nothing to do with unity uh, there. But that's all to do with the history of leadership and actually someone being able to join these people Galvanise these
1: people. Mm. You You've know. gone way off topic. We have gone way off topic. I'm bringing us back <laughs> Very briefly. to, pa- to clips. <laughs> Before we went off on that tangent, I was connecting to the Norwegian symbolic use of paper clips and talked about the safety pin as a sort of an anti-racism yes. badge. And then the use of paperclips by Whitwell Middle School in Tennessee... There was a, the paperclip project where a, a teacher had a very good idea of teaching them about the Holocaust and basically got them to go around and collect loads and loads of paperclips because she'd heard that um, Nazi Germany was being protested against by the Norwegians because of these paperclips mm-hmm. um, and it was all about the Holocaust. I mean, quite incorrect historically, um, but it certainly meant something to that group of you know, of school children. But I want to take us on a slightly different tangent, but connected to what we've been talking about. You know, we've been talking about Nazi Germany. I want to talk about Germany post World War II and the Stasi mm. and the activities of the Stasi, which was filmed in a wonderful film called The Lives of Others. And in East Germany, the Stasi were the Ministry for State Security. And this is a bit like Big Brother. The attempt was to know everything about everyone. This was about a surveillance state. And at its height, the Stasi had something like 90,000 full-time employees, you know, who were basically keeping tabs on people through reading their mail videoing them you know audio extortion bribery i mean it was absolutely immense it was these, these hasn't sort of
2: mi5 t- been doing this tent- i mean, writing the paper it has
1: been- <laughs> it's the important um, equivalent probably listening to us now as, <laughs> yeah. as we say this we have to be careful but these tentacles of the state that are out there so this is about bureaucracy it's about keeping tabs on people mm-hmm. but where i want to go with this is here post a berlin wall coming down in the 80s, there was a shredding of all evidence. Wow. Okay, so what do you describe there? You've got a photograph that I'm showing you. There's a a
2: lady in front of loads of boxes of fragments of paper, in in, in a room full of boxes, which I presume are all full of fragments of paper. That's all I can tell you about that. It looks like someone's dealing with... you, You know, occasionally they find... Ancient, ancient papyrus manuscripts, and they're in a thousand different pieces. It looks like the kind of fragments of that.
1: This is it. They are puzzles. This is a puzzle woman. Hmm. I Um, want
2: to be a puzzle man.
1: The puzzle man. So basically what this is, post-reunification, the government has basically kept employees working in these archives to deal with the requests of German people to see the records of them, from the time of the Stasi. And this Puzzle Woman is basically... What you see here is there are lots of different boxes, as you've said, almost like a jigsaw puzzle. And what she is doing is basically putting the documents back together. So that that people can read them. There have been, apparently, since 1991, almost 3 million requests. They have 5,000 requests each month for people to... Look at their own files. See what people have said about them. To see what people have said about wow. them. Because, you know, these are now public documents. People are interested in. What was said about them? What kind of tabs were people keeping on them? What information were they keeping on them? And they're now applying, you know, sophisticated computer algorithms to this. It's not just the puzzle women who are dealing with this. It's computers that are being brought in to sort of piece the material together.
2: I suspect that's a bigger challenge to the state, sort of observation of that many people, than it is kind of keeping tabs on tax and finance.
1: Absolutely. It's that kind of state, you know, where people are being Mm. observed all the time. So the history
2: it's of the so in... is to do with the history of paranoia. And yeah. the people that yeah. being right to be paranoid. Everyone, you should be right to be paranoid. Yeah. Everyone's watching.
1: Yeah. Before we go, one final thing is about paperclips and archiving. Again, right. when you work in the archives, one of the most annoying things for me and one of the most annoying things for archivists is finding rusty paperclips. Yeah. Because although we all use paper clips today, you think what happens in a hundred, two hundred years? You know, those paper clips rust and that rust is passed to the, the paper and it damages the paper. So I have here a set of instructions from a pamphlet produced by the Government Standards Agency on Preservation of Archive Professionals, Mm. which talks about exactly how you should treat paperclips. Paperclips are a very bad thing. The National Preservation Office, in its pamphlet on Basic handling practice says that pressure tapes, metal or plastic fasteners such as paper clips and pins, should never be used and must be removed by trained staff. And they go on to say that you know, basically you shouldn't really use these. And the best way to keep documents is not to paperclip them, but to have them in acid free paper folders yeah. as enclosures. So we're in a post-paperclip world? We're really in a digital world. The real thing is the paperclip is really defunct and now it's all about keeping your digital data up to date. With a digital paperclip? Yeah, so we've gone from the pre-paperclip world pre-history to of the, the, pa- paperclip. the pre-history of the paperclip to the history of the paperclip to the post-modern history it's of amazing. the paperclip. Via Norway? Via student <laughs> protest and Brazilian
2: dance. Yeah, that's true. I, I didn't even yeah. talk about human experimentation. Which I was going to talk about. You were? Why did you talk about... about, Why did you talk about... I'm going to leave that. I'm going to leave that. It's all to do with Operation Paperclip. Everyone, you should go and try and find out about Operation Paperclip. It's absolutely fascinating. It's one of those ridiculously named operations that happened in the Second World War. I
1: shall shuffle my papers now and put my paperclips back in order.
2: (laughs) Everyone, do get in touch with us. Tell us about your paperclip histories and come up with ideas for future shows. As always, you are the most important and you are the third member of this podcast. So don't forget us. We want to hear from you. Fantastic. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Bye. If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at thehistorymasterclass.com and follow on Facebook and Twitter at The